Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of... Classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh. Stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much-needed Zs, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. What Was That Like contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. And I was treading water and I just started to assess with my hands and I just kind of like started like patting myself down. And when my right hand got to the back, I just reached inside my leg and realized like at that point that it was really bad. Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is the show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. If you're a parent, you can probably identify a little bit with this story, especially if you have teenagers. My kids are grown now, but I remember back when they were teenagers, and my kids were really good. They never got in any trouble or anything like that. But even with responsible, mature teenagers, you just dread that someday you might get a phone call. It's that phone call from one of your kids that starts out, Now, Dad, I don't want you to freak out or anything, but something happened. Weston was 18 years old when he had to make that phone call to his parents one summer day. He and a couple of his friends, they were all teammates on the high school football team, were out on a boat all day. Just before it started to get dark, Weston was standing out on the bow, and he fell forward off the boat into the water. The boat and the spinning propeller under the water's surface continued forward directly to where Weston was treading water. He couldn't move out of the way quickly enough. He survived, of course, but what happened that day is something he still thinks about even today. This podcast is supported by you, the listener. If you like these stories, please consider joining the others who support the show for as little as $1 a month at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash support.
And now, please enjoy my conversation with Weston. How would you describe your level of tolerance for pain? I would say that I have a pretty high pain tolerance. I'm not sure if it's always been that way, but just before the accident, I've had so many different traumas. I've broken both arms, leg, elbows, wrists, ribs, nose, fingers. So, <laughs> Wow. You've had a lot of injuries, man. Yeah, I gave my parents a run for their money. So I don't know if it was just a culmination and you know this was the final thing. But during the accident, I don't remember specifically, but they asked me on a scale from one to 10, where are you? And I think my answer was six. I just remember my uncle was in the room. He said, uh, he's a 10. He'll be a 10 for the next hour. He'll be a 10 for the next day. And he'll be a 10 for the next week. So act accordingly. I was like, no, no, I, it's a six. But you've had so many other instances of pain that relative to those, it was uh, not that bad then. Yeah, it, it might still be the worst, but the way that accident specifically happened, you know, cut through nerves, and I didn't really know what had happened initially. But uh, yeah, I would say I have higher pain tolerance than most just based on the things that I've been through. And I don't know if that's something you can build up or um, if you're just born that way. And that might be why I've gotten into so many different accidents, because I I don't have my body telling me to stop doing something until until it's too late, essentially. Yeah, it's too late. Can you tell us where you were kind of at in life at the, when this happened? You were in high school, right? Yep. It was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. I'd say my main focus, I mean, it, for the last 10 years was football. I was coming off of a all-conference offense and defense, and I was an all-state linebacker my junior season. So I was poised going into my senior season to hopefully have a, a pretty good chance at playing in college or at least maybe walking onto a team or something along those lines. So you were hoping maybe to be seen by some college scouts sometime during your senior year, maybe? Yeah, that was that was the plan. I had, I had gone on a visit before. You know, I had a few coaches that I was talking to. It wasn't anything crazy, but we had started pursuing that. And that was actually the day that it happened was the afternoon. That, that morning was the first day of football workouts. And we went boating as kind of a reward to ourselves for finishing the first day and kind of getting into the start of the off-season program. I would imagine that if you're thinking football going into your senior year of high school and then thinking to play possibly in college, that that would be kind of the dominant thing in the back of your head kind of all the time. Like this is, that, that may be the direction your life is going, maybe even as a pro career. Did you think about that at all? I always wanted to. I'd say physically, I probably didn't have the frame to play professional ball, but I, that was definitely a dream. I, I wanted to. And if you were talented enough, that, that, could, that could pay for your college. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was that was one of the the driving motivations. The day of the accident, who were you with on the boat? Um, I was with Brent and Jeremy. We were three linebackers on the football team, and we basically went in. It's like an hour drive north to Jeremy's grandmother's house. That was it was her boat. So we uh, we w- finished football practice, got in the car, went up. Um, and we spent all afternoon on the boat. We were doing wakeboarding, tubing, and went back to the house and had dinner before we went back out on the boat. We were going to do some night fishing and finish out the day with just a little bit of fishing. What kind of boat was this? It was a pontoon boat. I don't know the, the specifics of like what type, but yeah, it was, it was a pontoon boat. When you say pontoon boat, I've been on pontoon boats here in Florida, and they're typically pretty slow. Yeah, yeah, we weren't we weren't going fast at all. Um, we were, I, I guess, I would say trolling. We had caught our bait, and we were just coasting essentially. Not, I mean, it, the boat was on, the propeller was engaged, um, and we were just making our way to where we were going to do the fishing. But when you talk earlier about wakeboarding, it seems like you'd you'd need a faster boat to do something like that. Yeah, ideally you would, but they yeah, that was the boat we had, so they they made do with it. All right, so you were planning to do some fishing. And uh, it was you and Brent and Jeremy, just the three of you on the boat. Yep. Yep. Just us three. So you guys uh, took off and you were on a, this was on a lake, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Car Lake uh, on the border of North Carolina and Virginia. 
So just take us through what happened. I remember just standing on the front and I was in shorts and a t-shirt because, you know, we weren't planning on swimming. I wasn't planning on getting in the water the rest of the day. And there's a little gate that you can open up with two seats out on the front of the pontoon boat and then nothing else except for, you know, just a ledge to the water. And I was standing on the front just kind of enjoying the the air because I think we pretty certain I was sunburnt just from being out on the lake the entire day prior. So you were on the you were on the front of the boat and there was there was no rail or anything there correct, in front of correct. you. Yep, okay. it was just open air. And I'm not sure if, if music was playing or or what, but yeah, I guess Jeremy thought oh, it would be funny if I kill the engine and then start it back up again to kind of shake the boat, similar to a brake check in a car. And obviously he didn't he didn't let me know. So all this I feel a jolt and kind of lose my balance. And I just feel myself going forward. So I essentially, I guess, jump in or fall in and I don't own a boat or didn't spend much time. And the propeller didn't cross my mind. I, I think what was going through my head was, oh, crap, my clothes are getting wet and I don't have a change of clothes. So that was the last thing I remember before going in. And I guess by the nature of the pontoon boat, there's nothing in between me and the propeller at that point. The hull is on the left and the right. So you fell off forward right in the center of the boat. Correct. Yep. And but that's off the front of the boat, and the and the motor, the the engines in the back. Yeah. Right? Yeah. How did you How did you meet up with the propeller? Yeah, in a boat, when you do, I guess a brake check or whatever, he did kill the engine. Um, the boat's still carrying forward, um, not fast. And I I don't know that he reengaged the engine immediately, but the propeller was definitely still spinning when it you know the boat traveled however many twenty feet before before it made contact with me, I, I feel pretty certain that he killed the engine as soon as he saw me go off. But there's not, to my knowledge, a, a braking mechanism on the propeller. It would keep spinning until you know the it naturally slowed down. But it, it hadn't stopped by the time that it hit my hamstring or my leg. And I knew that the boat hit me, but I didn't. it didn't even process in my head that it could have been the propeller. I just remember immediately just feeling almost like a cramp is probably how I would describe it. Like somebody hit me in the back of the leg with a baseball bat or something. Like I definitely got hit and I knew that, you know, it was painful, but I wouldn't say it was sharp. It was just almost like somebody hit me with something. And the first thing I realized was like I was stuck and I don't know if it was my, my suit was tangled in the propeller or what it was. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't get out. So I ended up having to like trying to fight my way out of my shorts and to, to get out from under the boat and to get up, up above water to where I could breathe. So the time when the propeller hit you, you were completely submerged at that point. Correct. Yep. I was underwater. And I, the, the only thing that was going through my head was like, not that I was injured, but it was like, I'm embarrassed because now I don't have shorts there off. So I'm going to be treading water naked. Um, and I remember thinking like, oh, this is going to suck. It's going to be really embarrassing when I get back to the boat. But I, so I was behind the boat, I'd say probably 15 or 20 feet. Cause I could still see it and I could still talk to him and I was treading water and I just started to assess with my hands. And I just kind of like started like patting myself down. And when my right hand got to the back, I just reached inside my leg and realized like at that point that it was really bad. And I think that's what I, maybe there was some panic in my voice, but I just kind of like called out to him, like, it's really bad. And they, they were like, okay, come over here, come over here. Um, so I kind of swam over to the side of the boat, the side of the pontoon boat. And Brent just grabbed, grabbed my hand and pulled me out of the water. Uh, at the time I was probably close to 200 pounds and I don't know if it was just adrenaline, but I didn't need any assistance. He just pulled me right out and I was laying right there on the side of the pontoon boat. And I could see instantly that they were in, in shock, essentially, because uh, they were seeing. And I, I asked them, like, how bad is it? And, like, just their faces, the expressions on them, uh, I think they responded, it's really bad. And I couldn't see it because it's on the back of my leg, but I, look, I could look down and kind of to the side, and I could see um, the fat and meat and blood kind of just hanging down from, from the side. And, uh, yeah, I knew it was pretty bad at that point. 
And of course, the hamstring is on the back of your leg. Yep. So you couldn't really get a good look at it. But. Yeah. And I didn't want to really move. I, I don't remember feeling pain at that point in time. I think I was more focused on like what, what we need to do to fix this. Um, and I, one of the first thoughts in my head was like, this is going to like mess up my football season. Like my coach is going to be pissed essentially. And I, I didn't know the extent of it, but I remember Brent was wearing a long sleeve shirt. So I, I said, Hey, take the shirt off. I need to tie that around my leg. Um, so he tossed me the shirt and, I, I tied, I guess, essentially a makeshift tourniquet. I didn't have any type of leverage to, to really get it tight. And I'm not certain that it really did anything. But, uh, yeah, at that point, we didn't have cell service on the lake. So, Jeremy started the boat back up and we were driving back to the dock so that we could call 911 and get some help. How far were you from the shore? I want to say it was probably five to ten minutes, but I don't remember time from like in that, in that hour, very specifically. I mean, it didn't, it didn't take long. I remember once we got to the the dock, Brent sprinted up to the house to get to a landline to call. So this um, was just a random house that you saw the dock. And uh, no, it was his grandmother's house. We, we went back to, yeah, we went back to okay. his house. So he sprinted up, called 911. Um, it was me and Jeremy. He kind of pulled me under his arm, essentially like, like, you know, player hurt on a football field to to help carry him off. So I was just hobbling with my left leg to a golf cart that we had driven down to, uh, to the dock with. And I remember like it was, it was starting to hurt. And I remember it being painful to get onto the golf cart and kind of get situation situated to where I could hang on to drive back up to the, the house. I mean, it wasn't far. It might've been a one or two minute drive, but I just remember the bumps on the path um, is when the pain started to to come in. And you must have been bleeding all over the place. Yeah, I, I don't remember the blood. The only reason I'm alive is no major arteries were severed. That's what's really amazing about this, because, you know, you, you clip an artery, and then, you I mean, you probably could have bled out before you could even get anywhere. Correct. I would, the doctor said if my leg was smaller, then I, I most likely would have bled out in the water. It would have hit a bone or an artery or um, a vein, and I would have bled out in the water. So I guess I attribute a lot of that to like the strength and conditioning program because we were all in good shape and we were pretty strong guys. So I guess the mass of my leg is what ended up keeping me from severing an artery. Or The key to remember here is never skip leg day. Exactly. Yeah, never skip leg day. And it, thankfully, that was always my favorite workouts. I, I never did skip leg day because it was my favorite. This is the question. I know when you we were online with this, the question everybody was asking or want, or wondering about, even if they didn't ask, uh, just the leg or any other important parts? No, it was it was just the leg. Um, very fortunate. Yeah, it was, I, I guess, three major cuts in my hamstring into the belly of the hamstring. Um, and then eight to 10 superficial cuts that kind of like went up towards my, my butt or my glutes. I think one of those cuts needed stitches and the other ones they they just let heal um, by themselves so did you remain conscious the whole time i did i uh i still firmly believe that i was in a better state of mind than the other people and i don't know if it's because they knew the extent of it and i just thought i cut my leg but i i asked for the phone i called my parents um i specifically remember dialing my mom picked up and i said oh hey mom can i talk to dad please because uh, I didn't want to, I guess, worry her or tell her over the phone. And I'm sure she knew instantly. I mean, we, we had been through this. I'd hurt myself dozens of times up until this point. So she probably knew then. And I tell my dad, I was like, I don't want you to freak out. I cut my leg. It's pretty bad. And they're, they're wanting to take me to this hospital. And and we were in the, in the country and they kept saying Mariah Perm. And I didn't understand what they were saying. So I was trying to relay this to my dad. Like, they're taking me to Mariah Perm. And that didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what they were saying, but apparently it was the name of the hospital. And at that point, the EMTs had gotten there and needed to ask me some questions. So I passed the phone off to, to somebody else. But I was able to answer all the questions. I wasn't freaking out. I, I think I was pretty calm. But I was able to, my birthday, what day is it? What year is it? Uh, what's your name? Um, I mean, I knew my phone number to call my parents. Um, 
did you feel like you were on adrenaline at all? Or were you feeling any pain yet at this point? The pain was starting to get there, definitely. Um, it, it was when we were waiting for the ambulance. They were, I guess, packing towels into the back of my leg to try to control the bleeding that I started to feel some of the sharp pain that you would associate with a cut. And I definitely was starting to understand, like the, I guess, the gravity of the situation or the scope of the problem. What I found out later was the the crew that showed up, um, the EMTs were, I, I don't know if it's voluntary, uh, but the, the same guys that were in the ambulance that showed up were laying cable on the side of the road near the boat ramp where we launched earlier. And I remember my buddy saying like, yeah, we knew it was going to be rough. And we saw the same guys that were working on the side of the road were the people that responded for the emergency services. Well, out in the country, that's often the way it is. It's a volunteer EMT. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I remember just being, I don't know if it was like let down or just n- nervous when the ambulance that pulled up was like that old 70s or 80s. It looked like a van, not like the boxy ambulances that I guess I would associate with the current time. Um, so I was like, oh, goodness, I have no idea what I'm about to get into. And I, I guess that's when things kind of took a turn. They were trying to get an IV in so that they could administer morphine and other pain medicine. And they missed at least four times. Um, They were sticking me full of holes. And I I remember getting frustrated with them, telling them that I was in, I was in pain and it wasn't necessarily, I I didn't think it was from my leg. It was just like, they kept screwing this simple procedure up. And I remember thinking that the ambulance was really cramped. Um, I wanted my leg to be kind of in that bent position where I was, um, like if you're laying on your back and your knees are up in the air, that was how I had been since since I had gotten up on the boat and it was comfortable. And I want to say they were trying to secure me on the, the gurney um, so that it didn't bump around too much. But uh, that was when the pain definitely started to kick in. And I had not had morphine before that point, even though I've hurt myself dozens of times. I remember when the morphine finally started to... I guess, take effect, it felt like I was filling up with water. Like I could just feel whatever it was, was like, like filling up. And like, I felt like my head was filling up with water. Was that a, a good feeling or no, or no, I, I hated it. Um, yeah. To this day, I, I just, I would rather not be on morphine. I, it, I, the way I think it's supposed to work is it takes your mind off the pain. Like that's, I guess, how I would describe it is like you're focused on that feeling that it's giving your body instead of focusing on the pain. But it it made me uncomfortable. I remember, I don't know if it was like panic, but I didn't, I didn't like the morphine. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com/what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com/what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. 
Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing, two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science, and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25what. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. At some point in those few minutes of when they had, you got me in the ambulance and were trying to stabilize me and assess, um, they determined that the hospital, Mariah Parham, was not going to be able to treat me for my wounds and that uh, I would need to be taken to a specialist facility. Um, and the closest one was the Duke University Hospital. And they deemed it was necessary for the life flight to, to come to my location to get me to the hospital quickly. Um, I don't know if it was blood loss that they were worried about, but I remember them telling me the helicopter is going to be landing in a field close to here. It's going to be loud. Um, it's going to be bumpy. Just keep your head down and just try not to try not to freak out. I mean, I'd never been on a helicopter before I'd flown, so I wasn't really concerned about that. I think I was just more starting to, to feel the pain and um, trying to cope with that. I remember them opening the back of the ambulance and kind of hearing the helicopter and feeling the wind. And when they started to pull the stretcher out, um, I don't know if they weren't paying attention and didn't lock the legs, but when they pulled me out of the back of the ambulance, they just dropped me out of the back and I hit the ground. Oh man. And, and that was the point where I guess it turned and I felt like somebody had stuck a knife into me. Like the pain was shooting and the, me- the pain medicine wasn't doing anything. So they, I guess, pick me back up and start wheeling me towards a helicopter. And I'm starting to just really suffer from the pain. And I remember once they got me into the back of the helicopter, there was a female uh, EMT or nurse. And I told her, I need more pain medicine. I need more pain medicine. She's like, no, I, I understand. I know it hurts. And I was like, no, ma'am, they dropped me out of the back of the ambulance. She's like, no, no, it's really bumpy. Y- you know, it was just the bumps in the grass. And, and they looked to her and they're like, no, we dropped them. And, I, and then, like, you could see on her face, like, we need to get him more pain medicine. And she was clearly upset, but uh, I guess they gave me another dose. I don't remember how long that, that process took before they took off. I do remember that it got dark from the time that I got on the helicopter to the time I got off. I can't imagine it was more than a 10-minute flight, but, yeah, the accident happened after dinner, so it was probably pretty close to, to dusk. But I remember I was panicking on the helicopter. I don't know if it was the pain medicine or just the situation in general, uh, but I was I was terrified that it was going to crash. I asked the lady to pray with me and just I told her, and she, I'm sure, could see that I was panicked and that I was worried. I just remember being relieved when we finally landed. You think maybe that was you were going into shock at that point? Maybe. I... I I think I was just out of it and maybe it was the pain medicine. And, and I would, I would probably say if I did go into shock, it was in that point. Cause I don't remember much vividly after that point. And did she pray with you on the, on the uh, she did. She did. Yeah. I, and I, I think that, or I remember um, when she did that, that I, it, I was calm at that point and I was able to just focus on 
what she was saying and, and she was very comforting. I'm not sure who she was, but I'm very appreciative for what she was able to, to help me get through. I didn't find out until I guess days or weeks later what was going on on my parents' end. The last they knew, you know, I, I cut my leg and I was going to the hospital, um, which, you know, is concerning when your child calls you and says that. I'm not sure what level they thought this was because I, I mean, if I described it as pretty bad, they probably knew that it was maybe worse than I was letting on. And you had told them the other hospital too, right? Yeah, correct. So they were driving north from from our house, and it was about an hour to the lake. So they were flying up US one towards Mariah Barham, and I'm not sure who contacted them and told them they're no longer transporting your son to this. Their the life flight has actually been dispatched. And they're taking him to Duke University Hospital. So my dad said he did a U-turn on US-1 and got on to Highway 98, which was an east-west route to to Duke. And I don't know if they were going 100, but they were probably going as fast as they could. They actually beat the helicopter to Duke. They were waiting on the roof when the helicopter landed. I didn't know that at the time, but yeah, I found out later that, that they ended up beating the helicopter there. I'm sure there was some worried conversation in uh, in that car. I'm sure, yeah. I don't know if it was they, they might have been calling friends and family to just inform them what was happening. Um, I know my coach was called at one point. I remember he was at the hospital with me. I mean, for the first three days, he was sleeping in in a chair in the lobby. But uh, once I was at the hospital, I remember I briefly remember being taken out of the elevator and taken into the hospital. But I don't remember anything else until, I guess I was in the triage room and they were debreeding the wound. And I was expecting that it was going to be incredibly painful when they started taking the the, the towels out and starting to assess. Um, at some point they were, I guess, spraying water into it and it was really relieving. I don't know if it was the coolness of the water and I was sunburned and hot, um, but I remember that being relieving and comforting. And how, mu- how much time had passed at that point since you'd gotten to the hospital, or do you know? I have no idea. I would say probably pretty quickly. That was that was the first thing that took place. And I remember just asking over and over if I could have some water. And they kept saying, like, no, no, if you're going to be going into surgery. You can't have anything on your stomach. And I was just really thirsty. And maybe that's some of the pain medicine, but mixed with the the shock maybe that I was in or the trauma to my body. I remember my mom and dad coming in at that point, or at least my mom being there, and I was asking her for for water. I guess she finally convinced the doctors that that I could have, I think it was a wet cotton swab that they would like put on my lips or my tongue, which is just infuriating. I mean, when you're thirsty and they're just teasing you with water, it was it was painful. I'm not sure how long it was before the next steps were taken. I know they were trying to get a specialist into the hospital that could basically operate on me or or do the procedure that was necessary. Um, And they couldn't find one or one couldn't get there fast enough. This seems kind of unusual. I mean, this is a major hospital. Yeah, it is. You think they'd have a surgeon, like an ER surgeon or something. Yeah. And I think I'm not certain. I, I guess they thought they needed somebody better than just the regular ER surgeon. They needed a specialist that was capable of dealing with that level of trauma. Was there ever any question of losing the leg? I was I was definitely worried that that it might. I, I do remember when I was before I'd gotten in the ambulance, I just like was just checking myself and I was able to wiggle my toes and, and kind of move my leg, which to me kind of like set that at ease, set my mind at ease that, you know, like I'm not losing my leg, or at least I didn't think I was. And you didn't, and it kind of put, put it out of your mind that the possibility of paralysis. Yeah. But I didn't think I was going to be paralyzed in that leg. Um, but I didn't know, I didn't know if I was going to lose it. And I don't remember the time frame, but I do remember a doctor was either the first night or the next morning saying, you'll probably never run again. And that was probably the worst thing that he could have told me whether that's the right or wrong thing to say from a doctor's perspective, he told a 17 or 18 year old athlete that has been working to play football 
you know, in college or as a career for the past, I'd been playing for 10 or 11 years at that point that I'll never run again. I might as well just like leave me under the boat at that, (laughs) at that point. That seems like such a premature prediction. Yeah, that's, that, that's how I felt. I mean, it, it, it really probably was the worst thing he could have told me specifically at that time. And I don't know if it was depression or, or what it was, but I just, I felt defeated and I felt like probably scared at that point. I just remember my coach, coach Winstead, he was there telling me, don't listen to him. You're, you're going to play football again. You're going to play football again this year. And um, we're going to get through this. We're going to beat this. I mean, at the time I didn't believe him, but yeah, that was really important to have people on your side telling you that it's not the end. It's not the, not the worst. He probably saw that as part of his job. His duty there was to inspire you to yep. you know give you hope. Yep. Another aspect of, of that night is um, I had been dating my girlfriend, um, now wife, for I think a year at the time. And I was just begging to see her. And she was over an hour away. She was actually, she was a year older than me. And she was at her college orientation with her friend. And I was just begging for her to be there. And thinking back, I was like, I'm sure that made my mom upset that, you know, like her baby's right here and she's right here and I'm begging for somebody else to, to be there. But you weren't in, you weren't in your regular frame of mind though. Correct. Yeah. Were you, what about the other two guys? Were they there with you? Yeah, they were there with me. Brent and Jeremy, I'm not sure when they made it there, but I remember Jeremy at least was there for at least like three days. I remember them describing him as like almost just like depressed himself and he wasn't eating and he wasn't talking. He was just, just kind of there. Well, it was all his fault. Yeah. And, and and I knew that. And I don't know what made me empathize with him instead of like hate him. But I remember thinking like, I need to make sure that that he's okay. And, and it was several days, you know, after the, the main incident, but I ended up lying to the police saying that, you know, we hit wake, we hit a bump and, and I, I fell off the front um, and it was my fault so that he wasn't somehow responsible for, for almost killing me. If I could go back, I would probably <laughs> be honest with the police from just strictly a financial standpoint. I think his insurance would be <laughs> liable to cover it um, instead of my parents. And, and now 10 years later, my own insurance. I mean, I'm still paying for physical therapy and procedures 10 years down the line. So that, that stings a little bit knowing that I guess my empathetic side kicked in in crisis time and I took care of him instead of my parents and myself at the time. Wow. And and did you and he talk about that at all? No, we didn't. Um, even 10 years down the line, I've if he said he was sorry, I don't remember it. Um, I'm sure he did at some point in the hospital when I was doped up on all the antibiotics under the sun and all the pain medicine. Um, but I don't remember really ever discussing it with him. Wow. Yeah, even 10 years down the line. I would think he would at least get you a gift card or something. <laughs> yeah, you'd think. No, I, I think I've come to come to peace with, with that whole situation. And I wish it could be handled differently. And I wish there could have been something else. But at this point, I, it's not worth killing myself over what happened then and what, what could have happened now. So Right. Well, at some point, your parents, you, you must have told your parents what actually happened or how it happened. Yeah. And I, I want to say that, I mean, I was wrestling with that internally, trying to decide, like, I don't want everybody thinking that I'm, like, uncoordinated or an idiot in this. Like, I caused this on myself, but, like, I lied to the police, and I knew that I did in my head, or the investigator. And I even think I, like, sat my mom down, like, I don't know the time frame, days or weeks after, to try to, like, tell her what happened. And she was like, oh, I already knew that. Like, I knew and she knew what had happened. And I don't know if I told her in my like drugged up state, um, but I was really concerned that she was going to be upset with me. And, and she had already found out or known what, what had happened. And maybe, maybe Jeremy was honest with, with them from the get go. And I just wasn't, you know, in the right frame of mind to understand what was going on around me. But yeah, I was worried for a while, like about the hole that I had dug for myself and like how I was going to, to get out. Cause I didn't want to be dishonest with my parents. Um, or think that for them to think that this was my fault and uh, be upset at me. 
So how did this affect your friendship with Jeremy? I don't know that I wouldn't say that it specifically killed our friendship. I would say our, our friendship was very largely like 95% based around football. And he was a year older than me and graduated and, and he went to college and I was still in high school. And that, that is what basically separated us more so than me holding a grudge or maybe him being embarrassed to be around me. I've seen him one or two times since then. And we, we were pleasant. We were, I think I was in Raleigh shopping and saw him and stopped and we said hello and kind of exchanged pleasantries for a minute and then kind of went our separate ways. It seems like you'd have a lot to talk about. Like, Hey, remember that day? I don't know. It just seems kind of, yeah, I guess maybe it's something that neither one of you really want to talk about. Maybe. Yeah. I think that might be it. Um, me just not wanting to, to go there, whether it's a grudge or just, you know, just letting it be in the past. I'm sure if either one of us had a chance to redo it, there's a thousand different ways we would handle it that day, but we can't now. So is it pretty much public knowledge now that he was the cause of this? I don't think so. I don't even know if his parents know. I really don't. There's there's been times where I've wanted like you know, maybe I got down mentally or um upset and I was like, maybe I'll just call his parents and be like, This is your son's fault. And his dad I, I always loved his dad and his dad looked up to to me from a football perspective and he would always tell me like he he loved the fire that I played with and he wished he could like put that in in himself and in other players. And you know maybe part of it was like a financial motivation where if I told them and they knew like maybe somehow they would like help me out or financially. Well, of course, yeah, yeah, they would feel obligated, I'm sure. But I ended up deciding that that was not the right course of action and as much as I might think that it would help me I don't think it would, it wouldn't fix any of the situation. I wouldn't, I, I would, I would almost feel bad if they offered money at this point. I would feel like that's not on them. Like, <laughs> well, and it was, it was Jeremy's action. It wasn't his parents. Exactly. And so they'd, me, they'd be the ones that would be hurt by it. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to upset Jeremy's parents. I, I haven't talked to them much since then, but um, I don't have any reason to to bring pain into their life or, or upset them. Did you experience any uh, bouts of depression at all? Or is that ongoing or was it ongoing? Looking back, I would say a lot of the time in the hospital, I may have been depressed to some extent. Certainly not now. Um, I think I've pretty much moved on from it. There's definitely frustration, but I wouldn't classify it as depression. I would say to, to a large extent, I mean, the accident may have led me to the situation I'm in now. I ended up marrying my girlfriend then. And I don't know if it was because of how well she took care of me during, but it certainly helped. I knew um, based on how, how well she cared for me in the hospital that I guess she was the one. And that's not to say that I didn't know before, but it definitely reinforced in my mind that like, this is somebody that when it's the worst, she's going to be there for me. And who's to say that if I don't get injured and I focus solely on football and I, you know, go play in college that I lose sight of my relationship. And like, I know a lot of college athletes lose their relationships because football is so demanding at that level. Um, So to some extent, I may owe my relationship that I have with my wife now to the accident um, and the two kids that we have. So I wouldn't. I don't think if I could snap my fingers and change it, I would at this point because of where I've ended up as a result of it. That's a pretty incredible way to look at it. There's certainly days where it's hurting that I wish (laughs) that it, it was different, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I would, I would change it at this point. How has your recovery gone since then? I mean, what was, I know you obviously went through physical therapy and, uh, certain probably multiple surgeries. Yeah, I'll uh, let me go back to, I guess the 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 hospital because a lot happened there that went wrong and went right. Um, I know they couldn't find a surgeon the night of, and I ended up having to just basically try to sleep. I'm not sure what room they put me in, um, but they were 
they were certain they could find a specialist that could come the next morning. And I remember waking up and it being sunny and the doctor had grabbed the toe of my hurt leg and he shook my leg to kind of wake me up, which like made the pain immediately come back. And he said something along the lines of, Hey, Weston, you know, I looked at your charts. We're going to have you stitched up and home by tomorrow because I've got a plane to catch. And my mom looked at him and said, get out of this room and don't ever come back in here. And I'm not sure what type of legal battle went on, but she filed a complaint with the hospital and he was removed from our care and they ended up finding another specialist. I'm just amazed at the doctors that, uh, I mean, most doctors (laughs) are are smart enough to to not do this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I, I guess he was just so intent on not missing that flight for his vacation or whatever it was that mm-hmm. he threw everything else out the window and, and thought, I, I'm not sure <laughs> if he was the specialist, if he actually saw the pictures to my leg, or maybe he thought he was in a different room, but I spent 18 days in the hospital. Um, it wasn't a, we'll stitch you up and you'll be home tomorrow. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself. That's unstoppable where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of... Classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice... Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. The first surgery, I guess, came shortly after that morning, sometime during that, that first day in the hospital, um, where they they stitched the hamstring back together. Like they they brought the two severed pieces together and and put stitches through the body of the muscle to hold it together. And then packed it with what's called a wound vac, um, which is that black foam in the pictures. And it makes, they put like a saran wrap or some type of tape over top of it that creates an airtight seal so that a small vacuum that's running 24-7 can basically pump out the fluid that's coming in there to keep the infection at a minimum. And I would say that's probably largely why I was able to heal so well, because I I didn't get any infections in the lake waters. I mean, it's nasty. Um, So I I was really fortunate to avoid any type of infection. Well, they had, they had you on a lot of antibiotics too. Correct. Yeah. Every, I mean, there was just bags and bags, like every antibiotic they had, they had me, they had me on, um, which just tears up your system. Like it was, it's definitely difficult first couple of days trying to just cope with at that point I was paralyzed. They, they, gave me a spinal tap. Um, so when I woke up from surgery, I couldn't move either of my legs. I was completely numb from like the low back down, um, which is terrifying. Like, even though you know 
that it's medically induced, like, you know, eventually once they explain it, um, not being able to move your legs is a, it's a terrible feeling. But the support that basically came around me was overwhelming. My coaches, my teachers, the people from my school, people from our church, family, friends, all day, every day were filling our room. And I was fortunate to be right under the cutoff to be in the pediatric ward at Duke. And I had a huge room. Like it was, it was a corner room and the days were great. I mean, I, I enjoy spending time with people to begin with, but to have them there basically cheering me up was great. I just remember every night at seven or eight, whenever it was, um, it was quiet hours where the really difficult, difficult times were. If it was depression, then that's when it was the strongest because it was quiet. There wasn't anything taking my mind off of the pain. My mom or dad was there sleeping on the little pullout couch. But even like when they had to, to leave to, to go get something, I just felt really alone. And I was focusing on the fact that like the doctors were telling me that this is going to affect me for the rest of my life. And uh, it was it was terrible. But I do remember, yeah, my girlfriend at the time, Nikki, she was there every day. I don't remember if it was like the first week she had to have her wisdom teeth taken out. Like she had the procedure scheduled, but she came the afternoon that she had her wisdom teeth out and we were both just sitting in there drugged up and just (laughs) (laughs) suffering together in sickness and in health. Yep, exactly. And my brother um, at the time was at airborne school in Fort Benning, Georgia. He's in the army. Um, and I remember wanting to see him, but like not, I, I told him, don't quit your training when you're done. Uh, I want to see you. I remember he got there. I don't know if it was like a week after, but uh, that my spirits were definitely lifted by being able to spend time with him. And I didn't, I didn't get to spend much time from the time he joined the army. Uh, he snuck a TV, a PlayStation in. It's like on one of those wheel, wheel on plate like food carriers he had a full video game set up where he could just wheel it in front of me and <laughs> he would sit in the bed beside me and we would just play video games and you know, I, thinking back now i probably ignored a lot of company because i was just sitting there playing video games but I, I remember that being one of my favorite experiences from the hospital well the people that visit you just want to see you comfortable and happy you know yeah at least i wouldn't be offended by you know yeah like that but but yeah i would i mean i would look back and I enjoyed the time in the hospital. Obviously I wasn't there for a good reason, but I got to see a lot of people and see how much they cared for me. I enjoyed a lot of my nurses. The procedures were, were really painful. I would probably say the skin grafts that they had to do were more painful at the time than the accident itself. So I, I hurt my right hamstring and sitting in bed for 24 hours a day you get really uncomfortable just laying on your back that long. And I remember just being able to like scoot to my left and kind of lean, you know, like on my left hip to, to get comfortable. Well, they took the skin grafts from my left leg on the outside. So then I felt stuck because I couldn't lean to the left because that's where they had just shaved skin off the side of my leg to patch the right side and I couldn't lean to the right side because the drains and the, the wound vac, the wound itself. So I just, I felt trapped after they did the skin grafts. And I don't know if it was a week after I had initially got there that they did that, but I remember it was incredibly painful. So last year it had gotten to the point where my leg was aching and hurting. So I restarted physical therapy Um, And she encouraged me, my physical therapist encouraged me to finish the procedure and get the rest of the skin graft removed and the scar tissue below it cleaned up. And that was successful. And the skin graft that was there is no longer there. And there's just a long, probably 15 inch scar down the back of my leg instead of the, like the skin graft scar that was there initially. So hopefully I won't have to have any more procedures on it in the future, but I'm not certain that that I'm out of the woods yet. So what sports or activities are you able to participate in now or what limitations do you have? I would say I'm not limited in what I can do, but I'm limited by the amount of pain afterwards. Like when I'm when I'm running and when I'm, 
you know, I, I've played rec league football, rec league softball. You know, I went to college after and played every intramural sport they offered and never really felt like I couldn't do something. I played collegiate rugby um, for a year um, afterwards, but it's getting to the point now. Well, rug- rugby, that's a, that's a pretty high contact sport, <laughs> yeah, right? Pretty definitely. Um, but the, the biggest issue I have now with my hamstring being weakened because I lost a considerable portion of the muscle mass from it, um, the hamstring combines with your calf muscle behind your knee to create support for your knee. And I have a considerably less supported right knee. So when I run for exercise, um, when I get tired and I lose my form, I quickly sprain my knee or hurt my knee or, you know, do something, something along those lines. Um, and I get terrible shin splints. Yeah, part of, part of the accident that we never really even knew happened, some part of the boat hit me in the calf muscle. And there was a cut on my calf in the hospital, but it just looked like a cut. And we didn't, they didn't treat it. They didn't, they didn't evaluate it. But we determined later that the the fascia or like the, the lining of the muscle was actually torn. And there's about a silver dollar size hole in the muscle fascia on my calf, um, which is where a lot of that shin splints and, and aching and pain comes from or, or is where it originates. And that's been equally difficult to deal with than the hamstring injury itself. And it was just something that they weren't even aware that it took place during the accident. Do you think you'll ever stop physical therapy? I don't think so. The only thing limiting me, if I could go once a week, every week, I would absolutely do it. It's just too expensive. (laughs) It's it's so expensive. Um, And insurance only covers a set portion. But I'm pursuing going back this year. Um, I just have to get a prescription from a, a regular doctor to see them so that insurance covers, you know, whatever portion they will. But I don't foresee myself ever being done with physical therapy. The damage to my leg is too, too great to, to really just fix. At this point, it's maintaining, trying to keep, keep that leg strong. One thing I determined this past year is that I relearned to walk incorrectly, and I use a lot of muscles differently on my right side than my left side, because I've been compensating for the lack of uh, muscle mass in my hamstring. So a lot of my physical therapy is like trying to retrain my body to, to walk with a natural gait. When, when I was released from the hospital, they've had me in like a immobilizer. So my leg was straight and they told me that I needed to keep my leg perfectly straight for, it was either three or six months. Like it was a long, a long time that I needed to, to keep it immobile. I remember it was July 4th. Um, I was at my grandparents' house and I was just like in knots. My stomach was in knots. I was in so much pain from, from the medicine. And I was just sitting there um, in the bathroom with, and I was trying, it was a really small bathroom. I was trying to get comfortable where I could like get seated, but I couldn't because my leg was straight. And I just, I guess, made the decision then that like I'm taking this brace off. And so I unstrapped all the straps and I took it off. And I kind of just like grabbed below my knee and like lifted up to kind of like let my leg naturally fall. And it was just like instant relief. And it made sense afterwards that when your leg is straight, your hamstring is at its tightest point. And bending my knee took the, the strain or the tightness off of my hamstring. And I pretty much decided I'm not putting that thing back on. I've never really liked following doctor's orders because I feel like they're really, really overcautious. And a lot of that's because, like, from a legal standpoint, yeah, if they liability. Say, oh, yeah. Um, but I didn't have time for liability. You know, I, I wanted to advance this, so I, I took the, the the brace off, and within a week of out of being out of the hospital, I was walking with a walker when I was supposed to be in a wheelchair for three to six months, and I only used the walker for two or three days before I switched to crutches. And then about a week after the crutches, I, I got rid of those. Um, and it was just kind of like hobbling around and I felt, I felt good. I felt, it felt good to be back on my feet. It was definitely faster than anybody would have recommended. And at that point, like, because I knew that I was beating all of these timelines, I was like, my goal is to play football this year. 
Just like coach said. Exactly. Just like, just like coach said. And it was a, it was a battle. I had different doctors. I went to so many different doctors and all of them were telling me I was crazy and that they wouldn't sign off on, on me, like finding a plan to like get back to playing football. But I finally found one and he was, I don't know, inspired or was willing to let me listen to my body. And he gave me a few goals. He said, if you can stretch to the point where you can put both of your hands on the ground with your legs straight, and if you can do this amount of weight support and, 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 and I was, that, that was my goal at that point. Um, so I spent all of my time with my physical therapist at the time, like trying to get to these goals. And he was <laughs> at the time, I felt like he was like trying to go against me. Um, and I know that he was just working to try to keep me healthy, but uh, I was 18 years old and young and dumb and wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I remember just battling him every day that I went like saying, I'm going to play football this year. And no, no, you really shouldn't. You're not going to like, but we worked for three months and I was able to meet all of the goals or milestones that the doctor gave me at this clinic that I was going to. And then I played football three months after the accident. I don't remember specifically how many days, but I was able to suit up and play uh, my senior year uh, on the football field. That is pretty incredible. Three months. It, it felt good from from my perspective to be told, you'll never run again. You need to have your legs straight for three to six months, and you shouldn't be doing this, and you shouldn't be doing this. And I was able to uh, battle back and, and get back on the football field. It wasn't to a level that I was happy with from a performance standpoint, which is understandable, but it's still, it kills me knowing that like from my entire career, like I was the guy who was going to make the stop and, and be on the field. And I remember like the worst thing that ever happened or felt like ever happened was it was like a crucial third down play. And I got pulled out of the game for what to me was a backup to take my place. So there was still frustration. And I would say some of, some of the battles that I had to go through was like, I'm not the same as I was like, I'm, I'm, I made it back and I, I proved to myself that I could still play football, but I was frustrated that it was at a significantly lower level than I had been at before. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to, at some point you have to mentally accept that. Yep. So that was another just mental battle that I, I had to go through. Have you gone boating again? I have. A couple of times I've been, I, I essentially got back on the horse proverbial, proverbially, but I, I guess I was never really big into boating beforehand. It was kind of a, if the opportunity arises, then I'll gladly go on it. But I'm at a point in life where I don't own a boat myself and I don't know anybody else who really owns a boat. I've been fishing a couple of times. My uh, father-in-law has a boat and we've gone out on it a handful of times. But at least you know you haven't given into the fear of, I can't get on a boat again. Correct. Yeah. And I, I'm definitely much more wary of when I'm on a boat or really just in general. I think um, one of the big things that changed internally from the accident is being aware of situations. A lot of times it manifests in like height situations. Like I don't mind myself being in heights, like I can be there, but I'm really conscientious of other people in heights and like things outside of my control. Like if somebody were to try to push me off or if like specifically with my kids, like I want to be holding my kids when we're up high because I know I can hold them, but I don't know that somebody else. And I think that changed that I'm much more conscientious of external situations and like, I guess, high risk situations. I can imagine that, especially with your kids. Yeah, I, mean, I remember when my kids were little, you know, that's instinct. But it's, it's, it's been a long time. It, I would say most days I think about the accident still, not necessarily the actual being hit by the boat, but just like I think about my leg and like the pain that it causes in my lower back and the aches and pains. And I, I pretty much have to stretch daily if I want to uh, keep it from hurting. Could have been a lot worse, right? Absolutely. I uh, very easily could have died um, in the water and I very easily could have lost my leg. So I'm very blessed and thankful to be able to run around with my kids. Even if it, even if it hurts, it's a blessing to, to be able to have my legs still. I hope that's the worst accident 
you have in your life. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. When I, when I immediately, I guess, recovered, I made like a, a bucket list of like the worst kind. I was like, well, now that I've been hit by a boat, I need to get hit by a car and I need to get shot at some point. And then I'll feel like I have completed all of the negative things. I haven't checked any more things off the bucket list. I've broken a couple of bones since the accident. I broke my wrist. I broke my ribs. And I've broken some fingers since the accident. But <laughs> You are unbelievable, man. Well, if you check any more items off your bucket list, get back with me. I'll have you back on the podcast. <laughs> Great. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. As you may have already realized, my goal for each show is to introduce you to people and situations that you just won't find on other podcasts. If you're on Facebook, we'd love to have you join in on the discussion over at our private Facebook group. You can chat with other listeners about this episode or a previous episode. And even some of the guests I've had on the podcast are in there to talk about what they went through and answer your questions. You can get in at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash Facebook. Thanks again to those of you who support the show. Any money that comes in is going to be put toward a new microphone. If you've ever watched or listened to Joe Rogan's podcast, the mic he uses is the Shure SM7B, and it sounds awesome. And it's about $400 on Amazon. So someday you'll hear me talking on a new mic, and hopefully it's not too far into the future. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you here for the next episode, where we'll once again ask the question, what was that like? Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free, and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus, or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking Try Free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon.